Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Choose Inclusion for our Black Voices Matter series. I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Yubi and Mike. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Thank you, Nina. Yubaldo? Doing Hello, wonderful. Sorry, I had the the uh, <laughs> technical thing going on in the background and it hit. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to live. Um, I'm Welcome hearing to live stream. Twice. What's up with that? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. They need so more we, have a, we have a, a great guest today. I'm excited to uh, have on the podcast today, Cache Prescott. Uh, Cache is the founder of Shift Matters, a virtual inclusion strategist, military spouse, an adjunct professor of psychology at Purdue, and the host of the podcast, All Things Unlearned. So uh, we are super excited to have you here. Welcome to the podcast, Keshe. Thank you. I'm so excited to join you all today. So first question we ask all our guests is, how, how are you doing? <sighs> Where do we begin? <laughs> um, this is a question I often ask my students at the beginning of our classes, too, because there's just so much going on. And uh, you know, today, today is a great day, uh, but that's obviously not always the case. You know, I'm feeling the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of all that's happening in the world with the pandemic and, you know, just the stressors of life and trying to navigate everything that's going on. So today is a very good day. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so tell us about your background. I mean, I just, I just threw out a whole bunch of titles for you, but I think it's always better to, to hear the story than the titles. So tell us about how you got to where you are and doing all the things you are today. Sure. So I am a social scientist by training, by background. Um, I have a master's degree in sociology and a master's degree in industrial organizational psychology. So that's just the fancy way of saying business psychology or psychology of the workplace. Um, and when I met my now husband, um, we I was in a PhD program for sociology and decided that just wasn't the path for me. I didn't want to become a full uh, tenure track professor at that time in my life. And so, you know, married into the military. So that's where the male spouse title comes into play. But that definitely has affected my professional endeavors. Um, the places we went to were, there were just a lot of limited job opportunities for me. And I often tell people the first time, first base we went to, um, we were in the middle of Montana, you know, away from everybody we knew. And to just get out the house, I was working at Barnes and Noble, which I'm not knocking Barnes and Noble. I love the store. I am a bookworm. So love, love, love the store. It just wasn't what I had gone to school for. That's all. And so I swear it seemed like a series of unfortunate events. Every time I turned around, if I got a job, you know, it, they would lay people off or an office would close or something to that effect. And so I got to the point where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so that's what kind of opened the door to entrepreneurship with me. for me. Um, it was really this necessity was the mother of invention. And so I decided to explore the possibility of creating a portable career opportunity for myself. Um, because they just weren't giving these opportunities to male spouses at the time. You know, we've come a long way since then, but um, at that time, it just, you know, it felt like you had a scarlet letter on your forehead if you indicated in any way, shape, or form that you were a military spouse because people just, you know, they were hesitant because they knew you might not be there too long. And 
my thought, it was just erroneous thinking because people aren't staying at jobs for, you know, 20, 10, or even five years at this point any longer. They're staying maybe two, three, four years getting their experience and moving on to the next thing. So again, we've come a long way, but still some work to be done in that capacity. But, you know, my business has kind of gone through iterations over the years, but in these, in the past year or so, I've really kind of focused on, uh, helping people just kind of in the work way of professional development and personal development and strategy. You know, I'm a strategic thinker by nature. And so I was doing some of that and then COVID happened. And then I saw the opportunity really to speak about the topic specifically related to um, DEIB in remote work, because, you know, there was this mass transition to remote work but not a lot of consideration as to the effects that it would have on the existing DEIB work that had been done in the traditional workplace and how there needed to be an intentional intentional focus now that it was moving from traditional workplace to remote and distributed workforces. And as some people are seeing, it has exacerbated some of the issues related to DEIB. um, you know, I put a lot of focus on that because this conversation needs to be had uh, because, again, we're seeing problems that weren't completely addressed before um, now being amplified um, in terms of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, a- access um, in these remote workplaces. So. so what are the what are the unique problems that you've seen come up with? DEIMB in remote work? Sure. So for instance, just yesterday, um, today.com, they put up an article talking about the effects that remote work has had on just um, caretakers and, uh, you know, parents, but particularly mothers, um, women in the workforce, because generally speaking, uh, most often it is the mother that is the primary caretaker. Um, And they said in just September alone, there was there were 875,000 women that exited the workforce um, because you know with COVID it affected <laughs> everything related to you know our kids and schools and people had to come up with plans to try to make things work for their kids and oftentimes it is the woman and the women that are the ones that are tasked with this or you know the the female caregiver whomever it might be um, and again there were already issues when it comes to women in the workplace before this pandemic. But now, you know, you have this issue of these women being home with their kids and having to play, you know, tech support to their kids that, who are uh, participating in virtual learning or having to rearrange their schedules every time the, you know, the school changes its plan or changes what it plans to do. And then of course, also try to show up as the professional in their respective workplaces. And also there are the issues of just childcare in general, you know, for those that may have had their kids in childcare, it, you know, may have been, you know, in a daycare, if that daycare shut down, then that affects this person's work ability or their plans. Or if they, in some cases, you may have had a family member or sometimes, you know, it could be a grandparent or something to that effect. But if it's a grandparent, you know, you don't, you don't want to put them in a place and space where, they may be affected in terms of potentially getting COVID. And so trying to rearrange life and also show up as a professional has been particularly difficult 
And they talk about the fact that this is showing up to be the first female um, recession that we've ever seen. And so that that's one way in which it shows up. Another way it shows up is in terms of the um, individuals that might be neurodiverse. And what we mean by that might be people that um, uh, label uh, may call them that may have autism or may have ADHD or, you know, whatever it is that they um, bring to the workplace. They're being affected um, when it comes to this transition to remote work in a variety of ways. Um, You know, for some of them, there's some benefits to it in terms of, you know, if you're in your own place and space, it's a comfortable um, environment. It's an environment that you know and you know well. But there could be issues, for instance, if you have autism, where the change in the schedule can affect you in a, a, a potentially negative way. Or if you're somebody that might be dealing with um, uh, issues of you know, depression or severe anxiety, the increased isolation could be an issue as well. Um, or if you're someone that deals with issues of uh, sensory issues or, you know, what have, or tech, you know, things that are related to technology, all of these issues are being exacerbated um, because of the fact that, again, people just hadn't thought of it. It's not that, you know, they didn't necessarily care, but it was not, there was no time to plan out anything. Um, We were all all kind of forced into this pretty fast, but the um, point remains that these conversations do need to be had, um, you know, particularly if you're a company that has 15 or more employees, you know, you, 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 you have the American with Disabilities Act that you must adhere to. And, you, you know, you have to make these reasonable accommodations. And so having conversations about what these accommodations actually are, I think is key, because when we think about remote work, I think people think about, oh, well, okay, with remote work, we can reach more people and potentially bring more people and increase diversity in that way, which is great, but it doesn't address the inclusion problem. It doesn't address the belonging problems. It doesn't address all those other things. Another way it's showing up is with um, black and brown or or just BIPOC um, professionals in general. Again, is this conversation about just feelings of psychological safety when it comes to these populations, because, you know, oftentimes when they're coming into the workplace, there are, you know, things that are learned, you know, in the face-to-face setting that cannot necessarily be learned online. And oftentimes um, I was reading an article where they talked about uh, black and brown students in particular, that they don't feel as prepared for remote work as their white counterparts might feel. Uh, They are feeling less prepared. And also oftentimes um, when they're leaving school, they may be going back home uh, to a household that has a number of people, you know, extended relatives that their white counterparts may not have. So they may not have an actual space in the house to show up as that professional that they want to show up as. They may not feel as comfortable to engage in code switching, um, which is, you know, their ability to be able to change the the way they speak, their language, their behaviors, um, which is something that they learn in the face-to-face environment that they may not be able to pick on those cu- pick up on those cues as easily when it comes to remote work. But again, they may have concerns about showing up as, as they who they really are 
in a remote space and um, finding the way to, to divide between the two. It, it, it just, it's just creating these feelings of discomfort for um, the, these individuals. And so these conversations are important conversations that need to be had. And before we got online, I talked about the same thing for the LGBTQA plus community. Same thing, you know, it's where they're wondering, okay, you know, when I am showing up online, you know, am I able to show up as my full self? You know, are there things that I might have in my home that I may feel uncomfortable displaying? And I know we have, you know, filters and all kinds of stuff and backgrounds, but um, it's still a, a conversation that needs to be had because not everybody feels comfortable with, you know, showing up who's as who they are um, for fear of being judged or um, for fear of, you know, people having something to say about it. So, yeah. Professor, I am, uh, I, I, I love all the topics you're bringing in. And I know when we did our pre-call, uh, the, the, the topic of code switching came up. Yes. Uh, because as a, as a, as a blind guy, right. Like I'm, I got to tell you, like, I'm ill prepared for this conversation. I, I, I need you to help me with that topic. Please, please help me with that. Cause it, it, it seems kind of visual. So please, please educate me and possibly others. And to some degree it is visual uh, because again, you know, when you're, I, I'm a people watcher by nature. <laughs> so oftentimes when people are going into workplaces, you know, they are looking and observing and um, you, you know, in psychology, we talk about social cognitive theory. And one part of it is observational learning. Well, observation is generally, generally speaking what you're seeing, but it doesn't necessarily just have to be that. It can also be, you know, for someone that does identify as blind, you know, it could be what you hear, you know, the certain nuances in conversations or the certain way in which people are um, relaying information. That can also be a way to pick up on what is quote unquote <laughs> acceptable um, in a given environment or, uh, or what you believe is acceptable. And so again, it's just tapping into those senses to really get a feel for your environment and what may or may not be seen as um, tech, you know, may or may not be seen as acceptable or unacceptable. Uh, but generally speaking, Mike, it, it, it does tend to be virtual, uh, visual, visible or visual, but that's not the only way necessarily. Well, I mean, well, one of the other elements of it is um, the way people speak. So, you know, we live in a white dominant culture. Absolutely. Right? And, and so African-American vernacular English is a term that is used for the, the black community. Right. Like that is a common. Yes. You know, there is a whole other way of speaking. Right. There's a whole other culture of language. And there are subcultures of language that, you, and Mike, you yourself said you hear a Southern accent, you make assumptions, right? And no, um, abs that's absolutely, the, that's absolutely. the same thing with uh, what happens with I think a lot of the Black community around African American vernacular English. So they have to code switch literally to fit in within white dominant professional culture. Definitely, and this is uh, one issue that um, Black females deal with quite a bit. Um, and I definitely can speak from experience uh, because people do make assumptions 
about who you are, you know, depending on what does come out your mouth. And this is part of the issue with remote work, because if you are at home and you are in a place and space where you may not necessarily have the privacy that, you know, some of your other coworkers may have, you may not have a dedicated place and space where it's just you and, you know, your computer and, you know, your office. And so the discomfort in trying to code switch um, exists, but also not being able to, you know, have any division between work and home also lends to this idea of a lack of uh, psychological safety as well. So, well, what's interesting to me is, sorry, Mike, I, um, you're, you're good. good. What's interesting here is, is, you know, just the, the exhaustion of that. (laughs) And also like to, well, to your point too, um, about, you know, in this virtual world now, it's like, I imagine a lot of people who code switch often to, to fit in tend, you know, they, they don't let on that they're doing that to their mm-hmm. family and friends, but now they're having to, or they're having to sneak around or, you know, like, how do you, it's like having two identities. Absolutely. <laughs> and Absolutely. it's, it's so I, I can't even imagine like how draining that is. And it, it is. And that's the the issue. It, it is draining to have to try to figure this out and to navigate it. And an, another population that I kind of forgot to mention is we talked about just personality <laughs> and, you know, the old introvert, extrovert conversation you know, a lot of quieter personalities are getting lost in the sauce here in terms of remote work because they're competing in a different way to be seen and heard in the workplace that, you know, in face-to-face that, you know, it's a bit easier to try to make sure that you're heard, but then with the world of remotes, it's not as simple. And so again, this is another group of individuals or personalities that are getting, um, you know, are, sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, being discriminated against because they're not as loud as the next person. And so trying to figure out how to make it so that everyone is seen and everyone is heard. And that's also related to women in the workplace. Oftentimes they're being spoken over in the remote settings. um, And, you know, they're not being heard as much as they might be in a traditional setting. So there's so many different nuances and so many different areas in which these conversations need to be had. And so that's why I thought that this was such an important conversation for me and something that, uh, you know, somebody who's worked in remote work for so long that I just felt like it needed to be tackled. Well, and I think what also what, what the, how we're, uh, you know, the, how we evaluate these people in terms of like just interviewing, right. Definitely. And, yeah. You know, like it's not, it's, I mean, it, that has changed and, we can't continue to interview the way we've been interviewing people and treating candidates differently because one sounds different than the other. One looks different, you know, like it's everything needs to change. And I think COVID and, and, you know, black lives matter and this whole discussion has really put an amazing, you know, spotlight on it. Now we just need to do it. <laughs> and, and that's exactly. And so, you know, of course, you're seeing the bigger companies, uh, you know, trying to, you know, they're bringing if they had didn't already have a person um, that was focused on DEIB, you know, they're trying to bring in people. But then there are also the small businesses 
and even the micro businesses that still may face these same issues. And what I'm finding in trying to do, you know, trying to do this work is that oftentimes they don't think they need to engage someone in this capacity unless there is a problem. And what I'm trying to scream from the rooftops is, or from the mountaintops is like, hey, <laughs> let's be proactive. It's not about waiting until there's a problem. But even if you have a team of five, you have a team of five different individuals, you know, and, and, and they may not necessarily look differently, but there's everybody brings their own type of diversity to the conversation. And so these are things that you need to proactively look at, proactively address, and um, just have a plan in place because it's not just about you and your team. It's also about your diversity in your suppliers. It's also about diversity in the people that you serve. It's, you know, the list goes on and on and the many ways in which that um, DEIB just kind of extends, you know, into your world. It's just, it's not just under your quote unquote uh, roof. It, you know, it, there, there's so many different ways in which you need to really be aware of this and have these, these important conversations. And that's one thing I'm just really on a mission to really uh, make that clear to this, uh, the micro and the small businesses. It's like, okay, even if you can't afford a person in house, you can bring in somebody like me, you know, to provide that fractional um, inclusion support, you know, whether it be for a project or for, you know, uh, just on demand, if you have questions or in a, you know, as your chief virtual diversity officer for three months, six months or a year or something, just having that person that you can go to when you have questions, because again, it's about being proactive, not reactive. So. Uh, professor, I, I I was also really fascinated again for me um, when we when you talked about being a military spouse and how from a oh, an acceptance and inclusion like like that was another dimension of inclusion mm-hmm. I hadn't even thought of before. I, I I you know some of your experiences there like that that just fascinated me. Again, we're talking about you know, faces and races and in places and all this different kind of thing. And in, in this, the podcast is so, so humble to, to meet individuals like yourself, because I hadn't heard of that before. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely been an adventure <laughs> to say the least. Um, so my husband's been in the military for 14 years and, um, you know, generally speaking, his, my career plays set, second fiddle to his, generally speaking. Um, again, we've come quite a way since he first entered the military. And there are so many opportunities now in which people are trying to really make sure that they uh, tap into the greatness of military spouses because military spouses bring just so many amazing skills to the workplace. You know, the adaptability, the flexibility, the resilience, the loyalty that employers are looking for, they just have a problem understanding. So for instance, if they're reviewing resumes, again, they make snap decisions about this person before they even get that person in the door. Because if they, you know, they you mention uh, an army post or an air force base or whatever the case is on your resume, you know, 
or if you are volunteering for military affiliated or military spouse affiliated um, organizations or whatever the case is, you know, they're, they're already thinking, oh, okay, this person may be affiliated with the military. Uh, I don't know how long he, she, they may be here. So, uh, you know, let's pass on this before you even get a chance to show forth and prove. And so I volunteer for an organization called the Military uh, Spouse Professional Network, um, which is under the Hiring Our Heroes um, umbrella. And the goal here is really to serve as a liaison between our local employers and the military spouse um, population at our particular base. And they have this all across the country, but again, to really um, help employers understand that you know, even if you have a spouse that's there for one year or two years, what quality you will get out of this person and making that in time and investment into that person and what they bring to the table for you. Again, getting the, uh, you know, we talked about this whole idea of unlearning, but helping them to unlearn <laughs> what it means to have this typical um, job candidate or, or a candidate in general, because that person doesn't necessarily exist. That person that's staying at jobs for, you know, 10 years or five years, that person, generally speaking, doesn't exist. And so if you just help them with the mind shift change or the mindset change, I'm sorry, the mindset shift in relation to the military spouses and educate them, you know, that can open up a world of opportunities for these military spouses. And for me, you know, entrepreneurship has been an amazing opportunity and a way for me to, you know, keep doing the work I love to do, but it shouldn't be the only path for military spouses because not every military spouse wants to open a business. And that is absolutely great. You know, for those who wanted, who want to work for a traditional job, they should have that opportunity to do so. You know, we serve alongside our, you know, our, our service member. And so for us not to be able to do, you know, work that fulfills us is, Oftentimes it, it can be heartbreaking at times. It can be frustrating. Um, and so I'm glad that there are now, you know, a lot more programs that are addressing this. Um, but of course, there's still a lot of education in this capacity. I think one of the fascinating things about doing the show um, has been the fact that the common theme is that whenever you're part of a marginalized community, you end up going the entrepreneurial route often because yep. you don't have access to the same kind of traditional jobs. And it's true for all types of marginalized communities. Definitely. So Kesha, I, I have one last question for you. Um, what would you want to see? And you know, you're getting to work with lots of companies across the country. What do you want to see companies change around how they're approaching diversity, equity, and inclusion work? What's like the big thing that needs to happen? For me, it really is just being intentional about it and not just, uh, you know, for some companies, they are, again, acting in this, if they're doing something about it, sometimes it's in a performative way. And that doesn't serve anyone, um, you know, no one in those marginalized groups, and it doesn't serve the company whatsoever. People can see through uh, the performance and they, that just doesn't help your bottom line. For those other companies that may not necessarily think it's a priority, 
it is a priority. Um, you know, diversity and inclusion in any workplace is important. You know, no matter what type of diversity that may be, it does positively impact your bottom line. And, you know, I know that's what it's about for these companies, but if you don't do the work and have the conversations that need to be had or make time and space for these conversations, it's going to negatively impact, you know, the people that, you know, serve as your most important and prized asset. And that ultimately affects, you know, your effectiveness as an organization. And so I just want companies to really be more intentional about this. Intentional inclusion is um, the only way to go. It's not something that you can just do a one-time thing or, hey, we brought in more of whatever group of people, marginalized people. Uh, it goes well beyond that. As you all know, it goes well beyond just bringing the people in. You have to make sure that people do feel as if they are equal and, and you know, there's equity and there's equality and there's that sense of belonging for all involved and that people feel as if they have access to the, the things that they need to do, you know, need for their work, access to opportunities, you know, uh, but that does not happen if you are not intentional about it. And then I always talk about this idea of um, investing in your IRA, but for me, the IRA is being intentional, being responsible and being accountable. So beyond being intentional, you have to be responsible for the way you approach any of these initiatives that you are putting out in relation to DEIB, um, because it can't just be a haphazard thing. You have to make sure that you're willing to do the work. You have to make sure you're willing to do the internal work, first and foremost, as a person, and then the work with your team members and within your organization, and then being accountable for what the results are, you know, making sure you're really honing in on those um, metrics, you know, establishing or benchmarking those metrics, establishing metrics and seeing, you know, where there may be problems, where there may be deficiencies and keeping a regular uh, tab on, you know, what's working, what's not working, um, having conversations with people and bringing those uh, the diversity of um, ideas, you know, the cognitive diversity into your workplace. So when it comes to decision-making, even simple things like decision-making can um, lack inclusion. And so making sure that you infuse inclusion and infuse all these parts into the core of the business, I think is most key. And that is the class, everybody. Uh, thank you all for coming to <laughs> Professor Prescott's perfect textbook explanation of how to do this. You also have your homework, IRA homework. <laughs> so please take this and go do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Question. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate it. Love your voice. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I, you know, y'all are my people. So I, let me know anytime. <laughs> Absolutely. We got to stick together. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks everybody. Thank you for continuing to, to listen. Um, as always, you can hear us on a bunch of different um, uh, apps like Apple and Amazon and Spotify. And uh, because of you, Cache, I, I just signed us up for Stitcher um, also on YouTube. Awesome. So we'll just keep expanding all together and we'll make this work. So thank you all for listening, everybody. Take care. Take care, everyone. Thanks, everybody.